welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris. I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Grima Talwar-Kapoor. And oh my god, it is so nice to just see and to talk to you all. It has been uh, way too long. How are, how, how are you? How is everyone doing? You know, it's hard to believe that it's September, almost end of September, that it's E-Day. You know, it felt like the last time we recorded it, it felt like there might be an election out there at some point, And here we are. Breaking news. We're filming, we're recording this live on election night. And as we recorded this podcast and just pressed play, CBC has predicted a liberal government. What? Uh, projected a liberal government. That's what it says right here. For those of you right. who can't see, because Whoa, we're on the radio. that is the wow. cutting, BBC that is the breaking news of- right now with 131 oh. projected liberal seats to the conservative 72. So well. they're not saying a majority or minority, obviously, but they're making that prediction. All right. Well, listeners, uh, we're going to skip right past the small talk, uh, <laughs> which I know is what you come here for and go right to uh, what we're here to talk about tonight, which is Canada electing its 44th parliament, which as of recording is projecting a liberal government. We are watching CBC's trademark approach to huge panels with aerial shots, which seems a little scaled back this year, which I'm a little disappointed by, but, but here we are. Yeah, so right now, as of recording, the Liberals are leading or elected in 130 seats. The Conservatives, 74. The Bloc Québécois, 27. The NDP, 18. The Greens, 1. In terms of the popular vote, we are looking at 40% for the Liberals, 31% for the Conservatives, and 16% for the New Democrats, everyone else single digits. Uh, obviously, that's going to change. That's not going to be where things are at the end of this. Alberta is not anywhere in that yet. And so, you know, that that is not where I expect us to lead. But yeah, liberal government. Wow. I was expecting this to take a, a little bit longer, actually. And, you know, perhaps way too early to know what kind of government this is going to be. So maybe actually I'll throw to you first, Alvin. What are uh, some of the the reasons? Because I, I know you're actually managing an E-Day effort kind of as we speak. What are some of the reasons why this is a particularly weird election and why we should perhaps be prepared for this to go on for quite some time? Yeah, I've, I've spoken to some friends in the media who've, who are anticipating a couple of days of coverage here in terms of the final results. I think... The only reason the you know brainiacs over at CBC are are making this declaration already is based on the total vote number, right? Like they're making this prediction based on the total vote percentage going to the Liberals currently right now as of ten thirty at night on election day being over forty percent, and that so far with the total number of votes should be enough to carry the Liberals, even though we're only looking at a few dozen votes per riding. They're looking at it on aggregate, and I think that's why they're doing that. And but, apparently in the GTA, they're over 50%, which is kind of yeah. great. And I saw some numbers that had the, the Liberals over 45 over the weekend in the lead up to E-Day, obviously. So that was positive for the GTA. But the biggest challenge is going to be who are actually winning each seat, because each seat is not going to be determined for quite a while. They're predicting over 800,000 mail-in ballots. And listeners will want to know that those ballots aren't counted tonight. Those ballots will be counted tomorrow. 
They're not going to be opened until Tuesday morning around 10 o'clock, depending on what riding you're in. And if you take 800,000, you divide it by 338 ridings. Now, obviously, that's not a scientific way of doing this, but we're going to have an average of 25, 2600 votes per riding. Right. There were a couple of dozen that 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 will cover several ridings in terms of their margin of victory with in the last election in 2019, 16 ridings, 17 ridings being decided by fewer than a thousand votes. We're talking an average of twenty five, twenty six hundred votes that are going to be mail in only. So that's going to push this these results into the next day or so. Yeah, no. So I, I'm kind of just curious, like. What do we think? This is obviously, I think, a better showing for the liberals than I think some had predicted. And I think particularly after the campaign we just went through, which um, I'll just sort of say it out there. I don't think was a strong one for the liberals. And, you know, we had, I think, a couple really interesting policy things happen where the conservatives put out a platform that I think was their most unique, at least in years, uh, had a bunch of new things that aren't typically in the conservative agenda. The liberals waiting weeks to release a platform and the new Democrats sort of releasing, being pretty slight on policy details as well. And so, you know, I think a lot of folks watching this election, I think potentially thought this might be, you know, more of a a long night to see who was government. So yeah, I'm just curious for folks' reflections on the campaign and, and, you know, maybe why folks might have broken liberal at the last second after it was so close for so long. I mean, I think lots of people want to say that that they're willing to vote for change. But I think when there is widespread sense of anxiety and just precariousness overall, people are nervous. And I do think that what happened in Alberta a couple of days ago scared people a lot across the country, right? And the extent to which, you know, Aaron O'Toole was sort of grouped in with Kenny's failings as a leader. I I think that's had a lot to do with it. But I think it really forced people to think about where we were 19 months ago, and thinking about, you know, how much further we have to go. And at this point in, in, you know, where we are in the pandemic, thinking if, you know, we've got several months, several years ahead to sort of get to that post-pandemic life. Do we want to start new with a new government? And I think for a lot of people, when you ask yourself really critical questions, whether it's on the pandemic, climate change, childcare, it's hard to, at, at the ballot box, to change who you trust to lead you through this mess that we're in. A bunch of things. I think that the Liberals were smarter than people gave them credit for, which is that I think they anticipated the first week or two they were going to have to eat shit over calling an election that nobody wanted in the middle of a pandemic with no clear, coherent message as to why we needed one other than they wanted a majority. And But they did it in the end of summer when relatively few Canadians were tuning in And then when I think most people tuned in, that story had kind of run out of legs and a bunch of clear contrast around climate change, around childcare, around guns, around vaccine mandates emerged. And people looked at that and said, it's pretty clear who I want to support. And I think that the rise of the PPC probably hurt the conservatives. I think the collapse of the Greens probably helped the liberals. I think a bunch of factors probably kind of brought it all together in the end. And I also think that Aaron O'Toole running as a hard right 
conservative in the leadership race and then swinging so far to centrism like canadians aren't dumb right like they can see opportunism so i think a bunch of i think that all added up whether they will get a majority or not i'm not quite sure obviously yet but but yeah the fact that they're holding as many seats as they are it doesn't surprise me in fact the fact that the closing message from the conservative camp like i was driving around last night and i was hearing the radio ads was that nobody wanted this election and it cost 600 million dollars like that's your winning argument not what you want to do with power but that the election shouldn't be called which is implicitly saying justin should still be prime minister like i that was odd the whole thing is that but the way they ran their campaign in several ways was odd but i found that odd i've been talking a lot but those are my initial reactions I mean, I think they started really well, right? I mean, the first two weeks of the election was owned by the CPC and Aaron O'Toole coming out a little bit softer and and people liking, I guess, his Muscle Magazine t-shirt look. I just want to say someone, I want to know which conservative staffer was like, Aaron, you're a stone cold fox. Yeah. What we need is we need you in the tightest possible t-shirt we have. Um but it was weird because like I made fun of that so much. I think I made that exact same joke in the pod chat. And then like half of the people that I know like who follow politics, even on the margins, came out and said, actually, there's some stuff in here that I don't hate. And that surprises me. Like almost every person I know that follows politics, even a little bit, said that to me to a T. I, I mean, yeah, that's hilarious. I, I think they felt maybe why they went back to that well, Sam, with the $600 million election was that it was doing so well at the beginning and they didn't know what else to do at this point. And, you know, I heard that they were sort of starting to panic with 10 days out, expecting their numbers to continue to go up. And they they had stalled in and around the debates and they never really bounced back from that. And I think there was certainly opportunity for them to pick up seats in the GTA in Ontario. You could hear their the Aaron's messaging, you know, it's finally time we had a Prime Minister from the GTA was a line he'd be using a lot in the last week, which I don't really get. I mean, you talk about how many liberal voters there are in the GTA and how, you know, Fortress Toronto always votes liberal. It doesn't matter who the leader is. And most of the liberal leaders have been from Quebec. So I don't know that was ever going to resonate. And Stephen Harper was born in Toronto and nobody seemed to give a damn about that. Yeah. So do we think that this is an election that was perhaps more about trust than it actually was about policy. I mean, I think that there is, it's an interesting argument that you raise, Grima, in that, you know, on the merits, I think there are a ton of arguments against the liberal government that that I think really stung. You had the opportunistic election call, you had the, the events in Afghanistan right after, which I think made it seem particularly like bad timing. And, you know, you heard, I think, the liberal government's loudest critics coming out saying, you have time for an election, but you don't have time to end boil water advisories, like all of those things. I don't think were those were not softball criticisms. Those weren't things that bounced off. But I, I agree that this what we're seeing at least sort of shows that folks probably heard a lot of that and decided to stay where, where they're where they were at. And that kind of yeah, you you really do wonder how much you know seeing things like gathering limits and in Alberta and reminding us is, is what drove that. Um, do we? Yeah, I guess. Do we think that this is something where? 
people were, do we think people were paying attention to the messages of the campaigns kind of at all, or did anything really resonate past the first sort of, once people really started tuning in that like last two week stretch? I mean, I think for a lot of progressive voters, you know, thinking about, okay, is this the, is this when I really get behind the NDP and say like, I'm voting with my conscience? right? Like that I'm going to vote where my heart is. And I really believe in, you know, like the liberals have failed on pharmacare. The liberals have failed on so many important progressive policy ideas that regardless of that, and regardless of what the pandemic has shown us, I mean, there's no debating that the liberals have governed us through this pandemic, but to get us to that, you know, the lessons learned of the pandemic and to reflect our social architecture to look like what we think we need. Progressives stuck with the liberals. And I think that tells us something about, about who we're willing to take a chance on. I think it tells us about our trust in actual infrastructure. Who do we actually think will get anything done beyond dreams and beyond big ideas? You know, one big thing that comes to mind is the NDP, their big last message was around the wealth tax. They will support any party that forms government as long as the wealth tax is is put forward as something that will get done. And, you know, you talk to anybody that's done any real policy thinking on this, and that's not going to get done in two years. So to stick your, you know, your hat on, I want this thing that's not going to happen in two years. It just, I think for a lot of progressive voters, it forced them to think about who's actually going to do something, you know, not just like dream, but who's actually just going to get something done. And maybe childcare is that thing that will get done. Let's, I mean, let's revisit for a second. Like this election was called, everybody knows to get a majority government so that, you know, the prime minister could serve for another probably three years before handing it off to someone else calling it a career. But, they wanted more seats, right? The, the, and they wanted to take advantage of uh, the opportunities that it presented itself with. They didn't get that. They didn't get that, but they didn't get that because they didn't set the ballot question properly. They didn't give people a reason to vote for them. And if, if we fail on that front, it's because this was a poorly run campaign by this party. I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with that take. I don't think they did a good job off the top. They needed to give people a reason to vote for the party, and they needed to have a clear differentiation. Yeah, and they muddled they muddled that message off the top. But I like, but it's a very progressive platform. It's arguably the most progressive platform a liberal party has ever run on. And I think you know, to Grima's point, it's making sure the same way the Ontario Liberals did for a few cycles that the NDP doesn't creep up on the left. And like, in some ways, COVID has like shifted our, you know, kind of Overton window. But like, you know, let's not forget all the very fucking bold things that are in this platform and that they've done, right? Like, will they do them all? I don't know. But like, that's to to Grima's point, the proof will be in the pudding. But like, at least on childcare, at least on climate, I think they will. And, you know, that's country changing business. Yeah. Yeah. I... So I want to talk about the, let's talk about the Liberal Party, and then I want to talk uh, a little bit more about the NDP and, and how they ran this thing. First, Sam, I completely agree on the platform front. And in fact, actually, when I looked at the NDP and the Liberal platform, almost identical to align 
almost and actually like the end the liberal platform was costed and it actually had more detail in it and the ndp was usually just the same thing just with that but we'll actually do it and that that like here's the same promise but we'll actually do it was basically jagmeet singh's kind of main message so uh talking about the ndp a little bit how do we think that they are feeling less this time and they did because I, I, you know, I did hear at the beginning of the campaign, particularly, you know, in some of the, in some of these downtown Toronto seats where it is a liberal NDP swing and Alva Talvin's point, you know, people didn't feel like they had a real ballot box question to go to, you know, a lot of folks who could have voted their conscience and, you know, it doesn't seem to me like the NDP on their side gave enough of a reason for folks to come over that was that was different. But what do we think? How do we think uh, Jagmeet Singh ran this campaign? And what does it mean for sort of his future in the party? I think he'll hold on as leader. I think he's got the party apparatus pretty secure. How do they change their dynamic? Like, I mean, they did pick up probably a couple points if the polls are to be believed. But like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Like, I don't know yeah. how the NDP wins federally, given the all the current dynamics uh, at play, unless the Liberal Party totally disappears and collapses. But if that was going to happen, that would have happened in 2011. So I don't know. If I was an NDP strategist, I'd be scratching my head on that. I, I mean, I don't think Jagmeet's got anything to concern himself with the leadership. I've in between, you know, sending people out on canvases, found some time to, to listen to some of the pundits. And I think some of the um, salient, you know, points that they made were, you know, Jagmeet really dominated on the first ballot when he won the leadership a few cycles ago. And he is the most popular federal leader, right? He's engaged lots of young people who maybe didn't come out and vote in the way that they expected them to, but he's very engaging. He's, you know, the face of new Canadians. And I think they want to keep that. And I don't see anybody within the party, at least federally, challenging him for that position. The interesting question will be how many conservatives are ready to throw Aaron O'Toole overboard if he doesn't get a minority or hold Justin Trudeau to fewer seats than he had last time. Because, you know, every time they have these, these leadership contests in the federal conservatives, you're looking at, you know, 13, 14, 15 rounds, however many candidates it is, it takes them a long time to figure it out. It's still a pretty fractured party. And especially with, you know, him running to the center so hard, you're going to get more right wing hardliners who merged the reform party saying that you're not standing for who we are. If we're at least going to lose, we're going to lose on our grounds. I don't know, something like that. And you'll get Harper Wright saying that you can do it um, the right way, the conservative way in theory. I mean, I hope they get rid of him because I actually think that the liberals don't want to run against him again. I, I, hot take, and I'm not a fan, but I think he was a formidable opponent. And, you know, this was a weird election called well at a good time. But there was, uh, you know, he did well in the debates. I think that they had a couple key messages that really stuck. And it was weird because they... There's like a conservative thing where they there's so many things they don't like about Justin Trudeau and hating Justin Trudeau animates the base so much that like just landing on one seems not doing it justice. But like Aaron O'Toole sort of running closer to where maybe a traditional 
more sort of center-right liberal party would have been and saying, I'm the one you can trust. I'm the one who's responsible. And yeah, my targets might be lower, but I'll do what I say. I, I think it is a strong message for a government that has alienated even progressive voters by setting lofty ambitions and then falling short of them. It's just, you know, they... I think you're right, Sam. It's clear they didn't have a plan for the last two weeks. They didn't have a plan for a closing argument. And they careened around after the debate. Like, I don't remember what their central message was, really. Other but, than yeah. dodge, dodging Jason Kenney accusations. Yeah, it was yeah. bizarre. Yeah. But I think if we can just put this in, like, a global context for a second, like, having – this is a hot take, and I feel like I will regret this at some point <laughs> in my life, but – Having a strong conservative party in Canada, a strong conservative opposition is a good thing. And I think it's the question is, what do we want? I think it's important for good debates and good ideas and not feeling like you're entitled to power liberals, you know, like I think that's actually really important. And so, (laughs) again, you know. A couple of years from now, I might really regret this, but here we are. But I think that it's important for us to have a strong conservative, good ideas coming from the conservative party. What I'm worried about is that there is this, you know, there's this idea that O'Toole has to go because he hasn't performed to whatever the party expects. And the really, the hardcore right that, that completely usurps how conservatives are talk about social issues or fiscal issues, political issues, that becomes their dominant narrative. And what we've seen in different countries when that happens is that it makes for a very dysfunctional politic. And so I really hope for the sake of our country that doesn't happen. I think the conservatives moving center more towards the left in this election is reflective of reality of what economics needs to look like post-pandemic. We're not in the 90s. We're not in the Thatcher-Reagan era. So we have to let it go. And maybe hopefully this is the the hard lesson that that a lot of especially conservative economists need to hear. But I, I really hope that, you know, again, I could regret saying this all and you can hold me to it. No, I mean, uh, I mean, it's clear that there are a number of policy people in the conservative party who no longer feel tied to the idea that infinite GDP growth at any cost quarter by quarter is what the, what it needs to be forever. And I, that, that redounds to all of our benefits. So I, w- I would agree. Um, let's trying to think where to go next. What does this mean for Ontario and the Ontario election coming up in June? Let's talk about that. We're an Ontario podcast, Chris. I, <laughs> you know, I consider myself a citizen of the world, Sam. But yeah, no, let's do that. Let's do that. Okay, Ontario. So, I mean, the classic tourism is that we're, you know, we vote in the party we don't have in power. So, you know, how do we think a team Del Duca uh, team Ford are feeling about this, what we're seeing today. I think you're probably bang on. I'm sure Ford's happy and I'm sure the liberal camp, I mean, it's always tricky when your actual party wins, right? So I don't think they're like not yeah. happy, but you know what I mean? That creating contrast with, you know, an o- O'Toole government doing nothing on climate change or doing nothing on childcare would of course have been easier for Stephen Del Duca than, you know, saying we're going to join the Trudeau government in action on all this stuff. Right. And so, yeah, it becomes a harder road for sure. But I think each election cycle 
is its own beast. And I'm sure the liberals will try to create contrast on a whole bunch of other things with Ford, of which there will be ample opportunity as we've discussed at length on this podcast. Yeah. I want to push on that a little, I want to push on that a little bit though, because the, one of the things I thought was so interesting about this campaign and back to, you know, liberals feeling like they might be entitled to power is the idea that, I feel like there were probably a lot of liberals who believe this might be a bit of a thank you tour for having gotten through the pandemic. And it didn't, that is not where Canadian sentiment I think ended up being. And it was much closer than uh, I think anyone calling this election probably anticipated. And does that create problems for Doug Ford that maybe uh, needs to be worked into the campaign? Because I am sure I'm the premier that got you through COVID was top of the board of messages that they wanted to, to lead on. And or maybe I'm wrong about that, but you know, it, it clearly wasn't, you know, we, we weren't, we were not in the summer of, of, of vaccine heaven where people weren't anxious. Yeah. And, and the results in Nova Scotia, I mean, the Nova Scotia election was also very different because I don't think the premier there was very strong, but certainly not as strong as Ford, I don't think. But yeah, no, I agree. I think, it, you know, the further we get from, what am I trying to say? Like the longer this thing carries on and like the kids aren't vaccinated for, you know, a while longer, we have more waves and there's more uncertainty and we can't, you know, go travel like we thought we could, et cetera. Like the shine is off for sure. Right. But I think governments make this mistake a lot where they run on their record and they think it's a referendum on what they've done. Elections are always going to be about the future. What are you going to do for me next? Yeah, good job. You got us through the pandemic. You did like, you know, in my opinion of the Ford government, the bare minimum to try and keep as many people alive as possible. And in some ways you screwed up. And the federal government, you know, threw as much money as they possibly could and had blank checks to, you know, lots of pharmaceutical companies. And I think a lot of that was appropriate. But you can't run on that. It has to be about the future and what are you going to do for me next? Right. And I think that was sort of part of my earlier criticism of 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 the Liberal Party and how you know, it needed to be more about the future. It needed to be about the childcare deals that they were doing at the moment. It needed to be on how we're going to come out of the pandemic and what we're going to do for you then, not what we did during the pandemic, which maybe was the message from some people centrally, but not a lot on the ground. And and that's sort of where, where that came from. But I think, you know, I'm amazed that Doug and Justin both managed to keep each other out of it. Because if you remember in 2019, so much of the prime minister's campaign was focused on Doug Ford. He was the biggest foil for, for himself than, than Andrew Shear was at the time. Right. And they kind of had this truce, which what everybody was sort of reporting on. And I'm amazed that it actually held up. Yeah. So I'm going to just do a quick little run through of where we're at in Ontario, because I, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, I think probably the big story of the night, if if this trend holds, is Liberals largely holding on to the, the GTA. I believe the only place where the Conservatives have a lead at the time of recording is in Thornhill with Melissa Lantzman, who I think was going to be a formidable candidate kind of no matter what. And it's, you know, traditionally a fairly Conservative-friendly place. The Conservatives um, had that writing before she was the candidate. The oh, did you? Oh, sorry. That's not yeah, yeah. She's right. not the incumbent, but the Conservatives had that writing from the last election. 
Okay, cool. I'll just, I'll edit myself there. And, but, you know, Ottawa looking like it's staying liberal, you know, the rest of Ontario looking fairly blue, Russia, Southern Ontario looking fairly blue, North Bay, Sudbury looks like, you know, liberals are leading at the time of recording. So this is not a very different map than, than how it looked before. And, you know, even some places where I think the we were looking at potential and I mean, so Toronto needs to be taken with a grain of salt, but I think, you know, the NDP was hoping for more probably momentum, at least in this part of the night in places like Davenport in places like Parkdale East High York. Park. Yeah. Parkdale High Park. Exactly. So, you know, I guess you know, some of these writings, Chris. <laughs> yeah. 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 So let's talk about, you know, let's talk about writings. I mean, it's not like the liberals ran an all-star team in all parts of Ontario yet either, or all parts of the GTA. No. And I mean, the NDP. So let's remember the last two elections, the Liberals won every seat in the 416. I think certain people like Nathaniel Erskine Smith, who I went to school with, like he's really made a name for himself in Beaches East York. And I think he was he's got that writing safely his. There's a couple of really interesting ones in Toronto, though. You got Julie Dershowitz in, uh, in Davenport and the NDP are leading in that writing. They've targeted that. Parkdale High Park is a writing they're currently leading by a couple as well. It's still really Spadina, Fort York, right downtown in the heart of Toronto. Kevin Wong, who was the liberal candidate who was somewhat unceremoniously dumped in the last uh, few days of the election due to sexual harassment allegations uh, coming from the past, is leading by quite a bit right now. So if he wins, he'll be not seated by the the federal party as a liberal and so he'll have to be an independent but so that's just toronto plus toronto center we have the federal green leader in toronto center who is not currently successful marcy ian's pulling it over 50 percent, which is amazing uh, for that candidate in that riding so you know maybe a miscalculation by the federal green leader in that riding uh, a couple of a comeback story in sandra pupatello now that we're leaving the gta a little bit in windsor west trying her second time not with Winning, not bringing, beating Brian Mass and the NDP over there. And another sort of liberal candidate who is unceremoniously dropped after the writ in uh, Raj Sani, who's still on the ballot in Kitchener Center, but coming in third to the first Green candidate potentially ever elected in Ontario, which is good for them. He had come in second in that riding in the last election, so he already had a lot of momentum. And we had Diane Vernell, the former liberal MPP of that riding, endorse the Green candidate after the uh, liberal candidate was turfed. So uh, a couple of super interesting things in Ontario and a couple other interesting things nationally that we can talk about later. But those are my hot takes for Ontario writings to watch. Cool, cool. Well, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think we're going to find out lots of interesting things. I mean, you know, uh, I, I mentioned, you know, some of those downtown writings. I think it also like we're looking at the people are still waiting in like two hour lines and stuff. And if these are close races, we may still still see those moves. So, you know, I, I think for uh, many of those reasons that you talked talked about the, the pod, Alvin, you know, the door is not closed on. NDP gains or really anything like this in, in, in the city. It's 11 o'clock, you know, we're all up past our bedtimes. But I do, I did before we close off today, want to maybe go around and uh, do a high and a low of this election, you know, a, a, a weird moment, something that were like, what is the thing that stood out to you as, you know, as a moment that you thought was important at this? Maybe let's do that. Not a high and a low. You can do a high and a low if you want, but like something you thought. This question is changing as I'm asking it. The question is uh, a moment of the election, which you can express as a moment or if you choose a rose and a thorn. There we go. There's the question. 
it's 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 one question with two different ways to answer because i'm just that generous a host generous is one word for it i think well i think a bunch of things but i think that the climate change plans and the kind of scrutiny they got in mainstream media and therefore and that carried through to like social media i thought was really good and sets us up well for like true accountability on that file in the first time i think ever in our history and as a bit of a climate change geek i think that's really nice and good i i think more generally prime minister trudeau or miss trudeau said that he wanted to hear canadians during the election and I really hope that he heard loud and clear that people want progressive change, but they also want collaboration. And I think I, I haven't seen that being reflective in the tone and tenor of what the liberals have been saying. But I think that's that I really hope that if the whole purpose of having this election was to hear from Canadians, this is verbatim what Trudeau said. Then I really do hope that the liberals have heard them loud and, and you know, I think some really important issues around childcare, around climate change, around I I don't think that that indigenous justice got the type of coverage it needed in the election. And that is something that I hope future conversations picks up on. I have a few closing thoughts here and a lot of them are based around the results that we're seeing so far. Keeping in mind, we're only at a few million votes, but it is sort of representative of Canada as a whole. The Liberals are down to 34%, but they're leading or elected in 153 ridings. I've said it before, I will say it again, we need electoral reform in Canada because we could be at 34, 35%, and the Liberals could elect a majority government, or they could be within a few seats of a majority government. I don't know that's a result anyone ever imagined uh, we would see in our system. Someone should promise. Someone should promise. Somebody should promise to change it. And Someone then should promise to change there. And say exactly what you want and say, hey, let's there. try this version. But I mean, the reason I'm focusing on the results is because I'm seeing, we're seeing more polarization, which is allowing this to happen. You're seeing the conservatives attack the PPC for splitting their vote. And they're taking 5% of the vote. The PPC in their fringiness fringe are still getting significant support around the country of people who are going to be very vocal and are very angry at all uh, of the traditional parties. And that's kind of now Maxim Bernier is only getting about 20% of the vote in his own writing. And he got a lot more than that the last time around. But his movement is actually doing something. But you know, I, I do have hope. You see some progressive parties doing well out West. The Democrats are winning two seats in, in Edmonton. So, I mean, maybe there's going to be a push against the conservative, you know, not just the Kenny government, but I guess how they've handled the pandemic and, and what their plans are, a lack of plans of dealing with the future. But, you know, the People's Party getting twice as many votes as the Greens. I don't think that's good. And, you know, these results coming up the middle, while it's good for the party that I support, not having you know, a real plurality or majority of support from Canadians. And it looks like right now, the latest results is showing that the Liberals and the Conservatives are essentially statistically tied. You know, we got to figure out how to govern better for all Canadians and how to better represent their views in government. Agreed. I'll just close by saying that, you know, one of us is, is ever, you know, 
advising a prime minister and the plan is that being bandied around the room is that the prime minister is going to go out he's going to drop the writ he's going to say this is an election about the future and the situation has changed and it's different and we need a mandate for the post-pandemic recovery someone just tell him to say what that damn plan is like it was like it was two weeks before we 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 knew in a we heard in a clear way what the plan was, and then you know, but and but during that two weeks we got great things like two tier O'Toole, like we got you know the oldest tiredest liberal arguments, and yeah, I I I, I agree. Like I feel really good that we're not going to bed with the likelihood of a conservative government. I do not feel good that this is a sustainable strategy for electing progressive governments uh, in the future. I, I would also like to say that we've all failed at a moment of the campaign, but I think they're pretty good closing thoughts. And it's been it's been nice recording pod with you guys for the first time in in a long time. I'll just close by saying some of you listening may have noticed it's been a while since uh, you've heard from us. And that is largely due to the fact that while it may seem like Ontario Loud is our full-time job, that we're paid millions of dollars for this, that is not true. Actually, many of us have day jobs as well. Uh, mine in particular involves helping manage part of a post-secondary institution through preparing both a return to work and a fourth wave. And that is eating up so, so, so much time to the point where at the end of the day, looking at a Google Doc just makes me want to cry, which is a main thing you need to do when you're writing pod in a collaborative way. So we're going to be on a hiatus a little bit longer. To our Patreon subscribers, we will be pausing the next month of uh, Patreon, you know, just because we're taking a little bit of an extended break here. But this is not the end of Ontario Loud. We know we're just going to be gone for a little bit longer than we normally are uh, during the summer and hope to be back talking Ontario politics soon. Lots of exciting stuff happening this year. An election. Other stuff. It's late. Thought I would come up with a throne there. speech just at gonna the beginning cut. of October. Throne speech. We're going to listen to the lieutenant governor say a bunch of stuff that Jack Ford's tenant. staff wrote Lieutenant. down on a page. Left it's going to be great. Gosh, darn it. Lieutenant Chris, get, get have a great movie. night, everyone. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about public policy and politics in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin, and Ontario Loud is myself, Sam Andre, Alvin Tejo, and Grima Tawakapur. We have amazing volunteers who support us, and we have amazing Patreon supporters who send us small amounts of money every month on Patreon. You go to patreon.ca/ontarioloud, and you can support us for anywhere from two to five to ten bucks a month or more. And it goes a long way. It helps us host. It helps us record. It helps us renew our equipment, which, in the fancy high-flying world of podcasting, helps us make a better-looking product ultimately for you. Want to acknowledge that Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit and many nations. Want to, particularly in light of uh, where we're at in this particular moment in our journey where we're grappling with some really painful truths, in reference to and take moments to recognize that a land acknowledgement isn't really enough. We all need to be doing more, and certainly on this podcast, we want to do everything we can to support those who are raising a lot of hell about colonization and the injustices that came with settling this country. We will be back next week with another episode and then mailbag. So uh, if you have a question for us, get at us at ontarioloudmail at gmail.com and that'll be us for the season. We're going to take us a little bit of a break after that, but a little bit more pod coming your way before we stop. So have a great week, everyone.